You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas This Week podcast. You're listening to episode 174. What's up, Mark? What's up, Jake? Big shout out to IBM for making the show possible. We love those guys. But Jake, this is something really cool. And you've probably seen this come across your desk. I just want to mention it to our audience because it's a credit and a thank you to our audience. Do you know that we rank number 92 in Apple Podcasts for the business podcast in the US? We literally broke the top 100 business podcasts, which is incredible considering how niche this show is. You think of all the business podcasts out there, and we broke the top 100. That's crazy. Yeah. So audience, thank you. Without you, we could have never done that. Apple probably needs to create another category for us, but we're good being the top 100 in the US. And it's funny, (laughs) we get the stats for everything. And this show ranks really high in careers, but like in Africa. So there evidently there's a lot of people in Africa listen to the show to help them with their career, which is funny. But speaking of supporting the show, if you want to support the show, the easiest, best, quickest way to do it is leave us a review. We got a great review listening from Saudi Arabia by Abdul Rahman from Saudi Arabia. I'm currently working Saudi Aramco as a drilling engineer. I really enjoy listening to the podcast, my daily commute to work. I enjoy, especially enjoy getting a different perspective on the industry. In addition to staying on top of industry news, keep up the awesome work and we will absolutely keep, keep up the awesome work. And it's cool. We got people listening from Saudi Aramco in Saudi Arabia. We know we have a bunch of Saudi Aramco's listeners here, but that's really cool. And if you want to be just like Alabark and get a big shout out on the show, leave us a review. It takes a couple seconds. And like I said, it's the best way to support the show. And Jake, let's get into news stories. All right. First up, are we going to go to war with Iran? Potentially. We recently, I think it was like two days ago, we blew up a few of their tankers, I believe, in an effort to actually that's that's in the next articles. We'll talk yeah, about let's that save that to the next one. Yeah, actually, no, that wasn't even Iran. That was Syria. I misspoke. <laughs> well, okay. no, no, you you didn't. You just don't know that yet. <laughs> Let's keep going okay, with this. Well, we're going to war with everybody, pretty much. So the, the whole premise of this article is, could a war with Iran send oil to $250 a barrel? I've been kind of I've been kind of dark on politics lately, Mark. So what's your what's your kind of take? Do you think this is actually realistic? Obviously, no. this is the title. Every time that there's tensions, you know, is, is oil going to go to $1,000 a barrel? You know, what's your take on this, Mark? So if we go to war, which is not going to happen because because Iran is not stupid enough to go quite bluntly to go to war with us, it would be it would be over in seconds. And a lot of our allies would like us to go to war with them. So it's actually kind of interesting to watch President Trump show some restraint and not pull the war trigger hammer. But so what's happened is if we would go to war, oil would spike and what it would spike to, I don't know, but it'd probably be two, two or three times what it's going for now, but it would be a temporary spike. The thing that would be different is that the U.S. and Russia would then try to capture that market share. So whenever the war was over, Iran would just have lost that market share. So them going to war with us besides losing very quickly would be stupid on a bunch of levels. This is one of them. They'd lose market share. But what's happened is they're trying to wait us out. They know that the American public doesn't like long-term military engagements, whether it's war or police actions or, or just enforcing an embargo. And so they're talking a lot of talk, a lot of smack, but they're, they're not going to do anything. And they're hoping that politically they can get the American people to not be supporting of this. You know, regardless of what you think of our current administration, I actually think they're doing a great job here because I was really wrong back when Obama was in office and we had the first the Iran nuclear deal. I actually support it. And if our audience was listening back then, you remember I caught a lot of flack from y'all saying I support this deal. But the reason I supported it back then is that it looked like they were heading toward denuclearization, which is the goal. What I didn't know then that I do know now is all it really was, was that 
Obama administration wanted to put that type of decision on hold. They didn't want the nuclear threat to get worse, but they weren't going to go and do the work it takes to make it go away. So they just kind of parked it there. So I was wrong when I supported that deal. Well, now our current administration has to deal with this. And and literally what they're doing, Jake, is, is they're squeezing the life out of Iran. We have our allies are working with us on this too. And so we won't go to war. Now, I don't know if we could get what we want or not as far as denuclearization, but it's a tense situation, which we could get to yet, but but I don't see us actually having – I see us maybe having some military action, you know, some some targeted strikes to just to prove that, you know, you don't want to be messing with us. Or if we see them, you know, gearing up somewhere or if they see them uh, coming in with uh, weapons of mass destruction, I can see us taking out. But we're not going to war with them. We just need to wait them out. Yeah, so like you mentioned, and like I guess I kind of let the cat out of the bag, so U.S.-led forces have blown up three oil tankers in Syria as the United States increases pressure on Syria. And the whole goal is to kind of thwart the oil trade between the PKK, YPD. G, whatever that means, and the <laughs> Well, um, so, so it was carried out by. Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. We're being nice. I was just say. So it was Very carried out by silly. coalition. Carried out by coalition planes. Hit three oil tankers, leaving four dead. Nobody's made a statement about the attack yet. So, a long story short, Iran is supplying oil to Syria, which is kind of going against U.S. sanctions, and essentially they're just pissing us off. So we blow up some of their ships. Yeah, so here, here's what's interesting. Syria, which sits on a ton of hydrocarbons, their production is only 24,000 barrels a day. Jake, I think you and Collins Wells might be at that production level. But their consumption is is over 130,000 barrels per day. So there's a big delta between what they can make for their own use and what they need. And so what this was, was Iran denying our sanctions and going to supply the energy that Syria needs. Now, Syria is is one of those countries where we really need to stay on top of this. We, we, we are squeezing them to death. Uh, that's the blockade that's going on. That's the sanctions going on. I do think it's really interesting that instead of usually in this situation, there'll be a warning, right? So if we have Navy in the area, if not, we'll do flybys with planes, but we'll warn the tankers, hey, you're in violation of this treaty. You need to turn around or whatever. In this case, that's not what happened, Jake. We took them out and it was the right thing to do. I think it sends a very clear message that if you try to go around our blockades, if you try to not pay attention to our sanctions, we have the reach and the ability just to take out your investments in infrastructure. You know, it's not like Iran has a whole bunch of tankers just lying around. This is a big cripple to them to take out three of them. I would guess that's probably 20% of their tanker fleet, maybe 30%. So in a tanker, you can't just, you know, you can't just go patch it up with some two by fours and some Elmer's glue. You know, you get a couple of, of, you know, cruise missiles and that thing, it's just gone. So this is a clear message. It was the right thing for us to do. And we just need to keep enforcing that the oil embargo on Syria and and they will cry uncle eventually. Yep. All right. So speaking about that part of the world, Marathon Oil goes truly quote unquote, all American as a divest Iraq asset. So they completed the divestiture of its Kurdistan assets on Friday, according to a press release. So they held a 15% stake in the Atrush block in the Kurdistan region in Iraq and represents the only holding in the country. It's a super small project. It was netting 2,400 barrels of oil equivalent per day. And it's going to allow them to double down and kind of focus on, I believe, mostly their Eagle Ford, Bakken, Scoop Stack assets. Oh, and the Permian. Oh, so they're not really focusing. They're just focusing on the U.S. They're not really focusing on one, uh, one play per se. But Yeah. Well, imagine if it was you, Jake, and you had a choice to invest in your money and time in marginal wells in Iraq or marginal wells in the Permian. <laughs> I mean, which one would you pick? Seriously, which one are you going to get shot at the le- least amount? It's, it's probably in the Permian. You never know sometimes. You never, you never know out in the, the back roads of Oklahoma. <laughs> or outside of Odessa. Nothing against Odessa. I love y'all. It's just funny out there. But this is all this is. And, and literally, it was such a small project. I really think this was not as much a joint venture as a test when Marathon first entered into it. And whether it was profitable or not, with all the political tension 
operations and having to worry about the safety of your people. I mean, Exxon just recently pulled a whole bunch of people out of Iraq, a whole bunch of their people out of Iraq in the interest of safety and shut down those the jobs that were going up there. So this just makes sense. It's it's nice to see Marathon, you know, pull that CapEx back and, and invest it back here in the United States. Cool. All right. So the Martina, who the Winklevoss twins are? I've heard the name. I have no idea who they are. Is that the guys that started? God, what was it? I'm not. I'm trying not to read your show notes to <laughs> to cheat, <laughs> but I've heard the name. So the answer is I just can't remember who they are. Okay, so Winklevoss twins. If you've seen the movie The Social Network, went to Harvard with Mark Zuckerberg and claimed to have originally founded Facebook, and they claimed that he stole the idea, and and obviously so that was a big part of like their story and a lawsuit and all that kind of stuff. So they've kind of been in the public eye ever since. I think they did actually win some sort of suit. They made a lot of money out of it. And then so far, they've just been reinvesting that capital into a variety of different things. And so they are looking to kind of make a little break into the oil and gas business, which I thought was interesting. So the Winklevoss twins and a Dallas-based private equity firm are putting their money behind one way of shrinking the natural gas glut here in U.S. shell basins, burn it to produce on-site electricity. So there's there's two companies that this article kind of dives into, the first of which is Mesa Natural Gas Solutions, which makes mobile generators that use gas from places like the Permian, power drilling operations. It's a portfolio company of BP Energy Partners, which is owned by T. Boone Pickens, as most people know. And then the other one is Crusoe Energy System, which has raised $5 million in seed financing from Bain Capital Ventures and the Winklevoss Twins to build small data centers that can mine cryptocurrency I've heard of gas from the wealth side. Actually, I think I've talked to these people. There's another guy doing it. That's not including this article. A small outfit called Petronium. And I know he's making a heavy push, talking to a lot of people, essentially, yeah, just using it to mine and turning what is now essentially wasted gas that is potentially being flared into some kind of revenue. I think this is funny. So I'm going to go ahead and just uh, to Colin Swan for a second. He mentioned this like three years ago. And it's so funny that we're seeing so many companies actually trying to do it now. And I talked to the Petroleum guys or I found out about them. Here's the thing. If you're there's a, there's a lot of implications that I think people aren't necessarily thinking about. Okay. So you have a lease to go out there and produce oil and gas. And you decide that you're just going to flare off some of the gas. What happens when now you're starting to mine cryptocurrency on that lease? Do the royalty owners still have a stake in that as well off any kind of revenue that is generated? I think it's going to completely redefine what the lease actually looks like. And then you think about the regulatory stuff that is associated with it. You know, it's, it's an interesting problem, you know, because it's something that's never been done before. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of cool stuff in here. So I'm actually talking to a company for the tech podcast that does the same thing. I think the name of the company is Easy Blockchain. And this it's in the future, y'all. So nobody go look for it now because we haven't done the interview yet. But there's a whole bunch of really interesting stuff here. So first thing, if you don't understand about cryptocurrency, most cryptocurrencies are set at a finite level and people mine them using processing power, right? And so what happens is you're processing speed helps you compete against people with slower processing to mine more cryptocurrency. But you got to be careful of your cost because your number one cost is electricity. And what, so what's happened is the people that are really into this build these portable crypto mining containers. And really, it's a bunch of high-performance computers. And then they try to – and they're, they're, they're mobile. They stick them on a truck and drive them somewhere. And they're trying to find the cheapest electricity in the country to park them to mine this cryptocurrency. And what was real hot was the Arizona – area because they have so much surplus solar that they literally just give it away for free at the right time of the day. But this is an interesting take. If you're running well gas, which is another whole story in itself, and you're, you're in gen sets off well gas or even fuel cells off well gas, well, now you basically have electricity for 
free, which then should help the crypto miners compete even against the people that are mining in Arizona. So it's a really interesting market in the fact that the guys that are making money on this aren't oil and gas people. They don't know oil and gas, but they see the opportunity for cheaper or free electricity. Now, going back to the well gas, that's a fascinating thing too. Well gas is not consistent. So the gas that comes out of your gas stove has been cleaned up, processed, filtered, and it's consistent. The amount of power per cubic foot is exactly the same or more or less the same. With well gas, it varies. So what happens is you have engines that either get too much hydrocarbons or not enough. So they have too much power, not enough. So you had to develop systems to be able to compensate for that. Then the well gas is also dirty. It's full of hydrogen sulfide. It's full of water, which if you know internal combustion engines, those are two things that internal combustion engines don't like, water and hydrogen sulfide. So they have to come up with new technology for that. So there's a bunch of little side stories in here. And I just think it's cool, number one, that we're able to take the well gas and, and run gensets or fuel cells and provide electricity to actually power the rig. So you're starting to see some experimental stuff like this going to the Gulf of Mexico. Where they're actually using uh, wind farms to drive electricity for the rigs offshore. And I've also heard of people that are mining cryptocurrency want to set their crypto mining offshore on platforms so they get that cheap electricity. So we really need to keep an eye on this. This doesn't sound like it's a big deal. This actually has the potential to be an enormous deal to create another revenue chain that literally didn't exist a year or two ago. And you're right, Jake, the people have the leases. I guarantee you, once this catches on, we'll start restructuring their leases. And I don't think they'll want a part of the cryptocurrency. I'll think they want to be ownership of electricity made from the well gas taken from their mineral rights. And that way they get a piece of the action no matter what. We'll see. Yeah, it's de- it's definitely, you know, it's innovative and it's a way to, yeah, way to make a d- revenue off of uh, you know existing assets in a super unconventional way. So definitely something I'm, I'm going to keep my eye on and see how it kind of develops. Shell begins production from a massive Gulf of Mexico platform. So they began production from its Appomattox Deepwater platform in the Gulf of Mexico, one of the largest projects in recent years. So the floating production system will produce approximately 175,000 BOE per day. Jesus Christ. That is a lot, is of, a oil. lot of oil. And this darn thing's floating. It's not anchored. You're just floating out there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is yeah. this is a cool project. All of the mate super majors are really good at these large mega projects. Everything from managing the CapEx to figuring out if it's financially viable to the project management, to the vendor selection, to the engineering, the procurement, the construction. This is what the super majors are really good at, these big, large, complex projects. And here's Shell just doing it like it's no big deal. And if you look at the size of this thing, I can't even imagine people built this, much less hit production schedules. And it's interesting, Jake, because they did this as a part of their deep water strategy. And you know, I've been saying since the downturn that Expensive oil is dead. Deep water, ultra deep water, high pressure, high temperature, all that sort of stuff. Well, Shell would not have spent all this money if they didn't think that somewhere in the near future, they're going to be able to extract those hydrocarbons cheaper and they can extract them now. So I guarantee you there's some more tech and there's some more process improvement we don't know yet that goes along with this large project. But this is really cool. Yeah, I would encourage everybody to like to just Google some images of this platform. I mean, it is it's a It's it two massive. cities floating in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, that's insane. Do you have any idea, does it say in the article as to how many people they have actually on board? Not in this article, but I guarantee you this is a thousand crew members out there. But And I'm, and I'm not talking about construction, I'm talking about operation. They're probably, running, they're probably running six or eight shifts. That's crazy. 
You know, I mean, it's just the, just the crew turnover has to yeah. be a, a herding of cats. Just trying to get the right people there and the right people off when they need to. But you know what? This is what we do as an industry. We're good at this sort of stuff. So, but, but I mean, this thing is enormous. You know, their their Prelude project, once again, one of the biggest LNG project or at the time, the biggest LNG floating LNG project out there, just enormous, just enormous piece of infrastructure. And and they act like it's no big deal. Oh, yeah, we can build something as big as 47 football fields. Yeah, do it all the time. Done. All right, private equity scrambles to buy assets in a new emerging oil and gas hotspot. So a little-known investment vehicle based in Cyprus, not Cyprus, Texas, <laughs> Cyprus, the actual country, is raising 5 to $10 billion for acquisitions of underutilized natural gas assets in the eastern Mediterranean. And so, yeah, that's interesting. So the firm Synergy Group is negotiating the fundraising with some of the most respectable global family offices, private equity firms, and sovereign wealth funds. So to give a little context, there's been a lot of major discoveries of gas made in all three of the countries collectively referred to as the Eastern Mediterranean. Egypt has the ambition to turn turned into a major regional player in natural gas after the political situation began to calm down after the Arab Spring rebellion and trouble with fundamentalists. I don't even know what that means. Yeah, so I guess somebody's raising a lot of money to go and buy some assets in the Eastern Mediterranean. I haven't really heard much. I mean, I've, we've seen some, some of the bigger guys that have some assets there in the Mediterranean. I want to say, actually, I'm not even going to speak. Probably it's just going to completely butcher, but I didn't know that it was a, such a hot spot. Yeah, so, kind of a shock. so Exxon has been making major discoveries in this part of the world. I mean, enormous discoveries in this part of the world. And where I think this is going is from an investment point of view, I think once the natural gas wells are drilled and they go in production, and once we have the time and money to build the infrastructure, to turn that natural gas into liquid, so LNG, I think this is a play to start supplying Europe to jump into that Russian market because there's plenty of gas here. We just need to build the infrastructure, the, the pipelines and the LNG trains and all that sort of stuff. And then Europe needs to build the opposite end of that infrastructure, which is the in, the import terminals and the regasification plants. But longer term wise, I see this as being a smooth move. You invest in the beginning where you know the hydrocarbons are there, but nobody's actually went to production yet. It's a good safe time to invest money. You know there's a market right there in Europe and you get ahead of everybody else. Now the problem here is you don't want to get too far ahead. So you know most people that that invest usually want, or, or even companies when they use their own internal capital, usually want to return that capital in the shortest amount of time as possible. So if you do this too early, it may be another 10 years before the first LNG plants come online, which means you might've been a little bit too early. But hopefully these people know what they're doing. They got everything time right. And for all I know, they may, may even be connected to the people that are doing the LNG plants. So in, in that part of the world, that Mediterranean part of the world, Egypt, it's very common for one or two companies to own the entire value chain from beginning to end, you know, from, from production to transportation to the LNG to delivery. So we'll keep an eye on this, but this is just another sign that LNG is the fuel of the future. I mean, even the private equity companies are seeing that. And this is a part of the world that actually could use that energy. We need to reduce Europe's dependence on Russia natural gas. And we're doing it. We're doing it with our own natural gas, which I think is cool. And it's cool that other countries can do it too. You just have more players in the market means prices go down, service goes up, and everybody benefits except maybe Russia. All right. Last article for the day. Shanair Energy said it's building its six. A liquefaction train, whatever that means, at its Sabine Pass LNG export terminal in Louisiana. So I guess they're expected to make a positive final investment decision as early as 2020 to add additional capacity in the third stage of its Corpus Christi LNG export terminal in Texas. Wait, the title said Louisiana. This first part says Corpus Christi. Well, it's the Sabine Pass. So on one side of Sabine Bass is Louisiana, and the other side is Texas territory. So the pass is called the Louisiana Sabine Pass, but they're actually built on the Texas side. 
I know it gets confusing, mm. doesn't it? And, and ah. in the case, yeah, in the case gotcha. anybody's curious about, about what an LNG train is, because it sounds really funny. When they they take natural gas, they have to reduce the volume of it, so they compress it down to liquid to make it economical to move. And they move it in super tankers, right? And so that liquefaction process is you have to clean the gas up and then you cool it in stages, right? So. Each stage of the liquefaction process is several parallel units arranged in order. So it literally, if you ever see like a, a satellite picture of a, of a big train yard, there's a bunch of trains parked. That's sort of what an LNG plant looks like, like a bunch of sitting trains, but they don't move. There's no railroad tracks. It's just one unit behind another, behind another, behind another. And then there's several of those running parallel. In this case, they're building the sixth one of these parallel units, which is a six LNG train. And so your audience, you're thank, you're, you can thank me later for explaining what an LNG train was. Because when I first heard it about five years ago, I go, I actually really thought it was a train. It's like, okay, so they're moving liquefied natural gas by train. That kind of makes sense, you know, and no, that's not what it is at all. But you know, I didn't actually tie these two articles together. It was an accident. But once again, you know, the world's the future of energy in the world is is natural gas. And we're very blessed and very lucky as a nation to be the number one. Do you know that, Jake, that we just passed up Russian gas production? We're now the number one gas producing country on the planet. Isn't that cool? Right. So we have all this this prosperity, all these hydrocarbons that we can share with the world. We just have to share it with the world in a way that they can afford it. And LNG is that way. The other thing about LNG is it's so much cleaner for the environment than coal. So we're actually helping the planet. We're helping the people on the planet. We're helping other countries. And, you know, we started this podcast off talking about some military action. The more countries can rely on on cheap, reliable energy from other sources where they're not worried about, where people aren't using it to hold them hostage, where there's not a constraint, the more peaceful the world gets. Now, that's not that doesn't mean that supplying LNG to the, the entire plants can make this the Star Trek utopia of the future. That's not going to happen. But it's one of those triggers when, when countries can't feed their people, when they can't supply energy for their people, they tend to be much more open to, to going to war. And, and this just helps calm everything down. So I just think this is cool. And I know for a fact the speckled trout are running in the Sabine Pass right now. So I wish I could get out there and go catch some specks. But this was the show for today. Is that, that's it with news articles, huh, Jake? That's it. Yeah. So real quick, I was talking about IBM in the beginning of the show. Big shout out to them. A great support of the show. We're doing some cool stuff with them now and in the future. And if you'd like to win one of these collectible one-of-a-kind shirts, it's really easy. Go to the show notes, click on the giveaway. It's an IBM hyphen OGTW is what you would go to. It's a bit.ly link. But we're giving away these cool shirts. They have a replica of a pump jack patent. These shirts are really cool. We have a on the picture on the front is a picture of a patented pump jack from like 1930s. You have the IBM logo on one sleeve, OGGN logo on another sheet. But the biggest thing is they're sequentially numbered. So each shirt has a unique serial number. And as you listen to the show, you'll hear Jake and I go, hey, shirt number 237, you just want to trip down to Miami, Florida, come hang out with us and do the podcast, or you just want this or the other. So go register. We give away one a week, and it's a really cool shirt. And I've seen a couple of people with these shirts on already, so it's definitely getting out there. Now we're out to the rig count. Jake, what's the rig count doing? You're at 983. That used to be a bad number, but it's not anymore, is it really? Our production's going up. Got to worry about the cost, but our, our production went up from this month or last month. I just hate to see the rig count go down, although it didn't go down that much. 
And then if you want to play a part in what Jake and I are doing, all the rest of the podcast, join the street team. There's a link in the show notes. We're looking for volunteers. You'll be part of our family. We ask for an hour worth of work a week, but darn it, if you can't do it because of work, family, whatever, we don't care. Plus, you get cool swag, get to hang out with us, all that sort of stuff. Go join the street team. While you're in the show notes, go ahead and sign up for our monthly oil and gas events newsletter. We take all the oil and gas events, put them in your box once a week, no spamming. And if you want Jake and I to come speak, let us know. We speak to universities, to young professional groups, to industry organizations, to sales and marketing. It doesn't matter. We can bring something really cool to your event that would be entertaining and make your members go, man, this was awesome. And then you know about the first Friday Q&A? We, we try to do it the first Friday, but we haven't been doing so well. But still, the principle is the same. Go to oilandgasthisweek.com, ask a question, submit your question. Remember, the goal is not to jump, stump Jake and I. And if we use your question on the air, we get a big shout out. While you're there, go ahead and give us your email. We promise not to spam you. Join the LinkedIn group. Oh, that's a lot. Jake, you ready to get out of here? Let's do it. All right. Remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. And here is Julie with the events on deck. Hey, it's Julie here, and I have a few OGGN announcements before heading into the events on deck. Street team, we are still taking volunteers for our street team. We're only asking for an hour of your time per week in exchange for perks such as free entry to our happy hours, shirts, networking with other young professionals in our group. The group is within Facebook, but you do not have to have a Facebook to join. Just send me an email. The link will be in the show notes and I can get you started. Our happy hours. We are actually moving to quarterly happy hours rather than monthly. So our next Houston happy hour as well as Midland will be in August or September. Be on the lookout for that date. You'll get an invite if you're on the list. If not, you can sign up on the list below. And then we are launching another happy hour in Denver in August. So if you're interested in that one, the link is in the show notes as well to be notified. We don't have a date or details for that yet, but they're coming up. Okay, now on to the events on deck. We have Golf for Good on June 11th, 2019 in Houston, Texas. All proceeds go to Helped Redeemed Ministries with our long-term recovery program and safe house to help victims of human trafficking become survivors. So mark your calendars and be ready to golf for good with Redeemed and our organizers Global SEM Energy and Red M. For more information on how to sponsor or register, just click the link in the show notes. Data-Driven Drilling and Production Conference is June 11th through 12th in Houston, Texas. This is where Silicon Valley meets oil and gas. Register at the link in our show notes below. The Energy and Data Conference is June 17th through 19th in Austin, Texas. This forward-looking conference will include the latest in digital transformation trends as they relate to the energy sectors with topics such as machine learning and data management storage, oil and gas development and drilling production, and more. Link down below. Energy Exposition is June 26th through 27th in Gillette, Wyoming. The Energy Exposition is for those who would like to know more about procedures, technology, safety, environmental practices, and equipment used in the oil and gas industry. And again, the link is in our show notes. Argentina Oil and Gas and Energy Summit 2019 is on July 10th and 11th in Buenos Aires. This summit's actually the first and only official event for the Argentinian 
oil and gas and energy industries. It will present a unique platform for networking that will bring together existing and future operators in the oil and gas industry in Argentina and Latin America. Next up is the 2019 IPANM annual meeting that Mark, Jake, and Paige will actually be speaking at. This will be July 24 through 26 in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And this year's theme is addressing operator needs in 2019. And next up is Desk and Derek Fort Worth second annual shoot for the future clay shoot. This clay shoot will be on July 26th in Decatur, Texas. And then last but not least, Summer Nape. This is going to be August 21st and 22nd to where the deals happen. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.